Okay, everybody take your Bibles and go to John chapter 3. This is Jesus, and he's talking to Nicodemus. If you ever get a chance, just read through chapter 3. This is the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And remember that Nicodemus was a high-ranking Pharisee, and he was part of the Sanhedrin, I believe. I believe that's correct. And yet he had a heart for Jesus. So look in verse 5. Jesus answered and said, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. What does that mean? Well, when you're born of water, it's um, it's referring to the um, you know the uh, the woman's pregnancy, physical birth. You know her water breaks. So uh, unless a man is born of water and of spirit, so there's two births there. There's the physical birth and the spiritual birth. Verse six. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again or born from above. So Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, and he is explaining that for humans, there are two births, and as a result, there are two natures, two natures, the nature of the flesh and the nature of the Spirit. So we're going to be using this term flesh quite a bit today. In the sense here, the flesh, we're talking about the physical being, right? That you're born of the flesh. But it also has a parallel meaning, which means the flesh in the Bible is talking about our natural state, which is our sinful nature, our sinful nature, okay? Um, When we understand what happened with Adam, we understand that for every person born into this world, Each person is born in a fallen state spiritually, okay? Now, we have the nature of Adam. That's just how it is. Adam and Eve were our first parents, and we have received, every person, this sin of Adam, right? This this state of Adam, which is our sinful state, all right? Each person born into this world is born without Holy Spirit, okay? So we are born of the flesh, but we are not born of the Spirit. That comes later. So the King James Version uses this term flesh to describe this sinful nature throughout. Then the uh, NIV, which we're reading today, refers to this as what it is, sinful nature. It's the spirit of the world, okay? So the flesh, our sinful nature, you know, that each person is born with in John 63, you don't have to turn there, says that this flesh profits nothing. In Romans chapter 7, verse 18, it says, In this flesh is no good thing. In Romans 8, 7, it says this nature is hostile to God. In Romans 8, 8, it says that this nature cannot please God. No matter how much we work on our flesh, no matter how much we clean it up and we discipline it and we alter it 
and we modify it, nothing good can come from the flesh because it is marred by sin. The book of Ephesians refers to this, these two natures, as the old man and the new man. The old man being Adam, the new man being Christ. So a believer, a Christian, is of two natures. This old nature, Adam, this new nature, Christ. Okay? This old nature is what we receive when we are born into this world. This new nature is what is created in righteousness and true holiness. It's a new nature, and it comes to anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. All right? Now, the thing about these two natures is that they are mutually exclusive. If you are walking by the flesh, you cannot be walking by the Spirit. And if you're walking by the Spirit, you cannot be walking by the flesh. All man's false and fruitless religion is based on the one mistaken principle that you can conform the flesh to be spiritual. You cannot. You can't make the flesh behave spiritually. All right? That's attempting to make something that is unholy into something that is good and righteous. It's a fruitless effort. Spirit and flesh are contrary to one another. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and look at verse 12. It says, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they, those things of the Spirit, are spiritually discerned or spiritually understood. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to man's judgment. All right? Does that make sense to everybody? So the man without the Spirit, in the King James Version, is called the natural man. The natural man. And I, I think that's an accurate statement, right? That's how we are naturally born into this world, every one of us, without spirit. The natural person is in his natural fallen state. The spiritual man, on the other hand, is the person who has, in addition to this fallen state, a spiritual nature. In order to understand the things that are given to us from God, the spiritual things, we must have spirit, right? Makes sense, doesn't it? The person without spirit cannot understand spiritual things. They think they're funny. They laugh at them. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. A lot of this is stuff that many of us have heard before, but, um, you know, this is the uh, this is something I think we need to go over often. I remember uh, I had known about the walk of the spirit, walk of the flesh, the two natures, and I read this book by E.W. Bullinger called The Two Natures of the Believer. and it said pretty much the same thing I had heard for years, but it said it in a way that really got me excited. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, As for you, you were dead in trespasses and sins. So Paul is talking to the Ephesians. These are believers, and he's reminding them. He's saying, As for you, you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. And the rulers of the uh, kingdom of the air, the spirit that now works in those who are disobedient. So the world is run by these spirits, right? We know in First John it says that the whole world lieth in wickedness, 
right? And for us, we used to live in that world. We lived according to the dictates of that world. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. What does that mean? It means that the world is headed for the judgment, the summary judgment of God. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Look in verse 16. Galatians 5, 16. It says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Remember what I said. These two natures are mutually exclusive. If you live by the one, you won't live by the other. Okay? And this is important for us to remember. Verse 17, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. How about that? That's why you can't take the flesh, the sinful nature, and make it behave so that it's spiritual. It doesn't work. Try as we might. The King James for this verse says that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit lusts against the flesh. I think that I think that capsulizes it. It's not an intellectual conflict. It's spiritual. It lies on a level below the intellect that you have these warring factions that the flesh lusts against the spirit, spirit lusts against the flesh. They're contrary to one another. The Bible says that no one by living by the fleshy nature is righteous. In Romans, we learn in the first five chapters that we are all Jew and Gentile, male and female, black and white. No matter what the category, we are all as human beings under this sinful nature. There is no one who is born into this world without it. Okay, so that's pretty clear. There is no righteous, no one righteous, no, not one. It doesn't matter what your education level is. It doesn't matter what your intellectual ability is. It doesn't matter what your accomplishments are. It doesn't matter what your cultural status is. It doesn't matter what your physical attractiveness is or your economic status or your prestige or merit or your even your sincerity and altruism. It just doesn't matter. We are all born into this world and if we do not get the Spirit of Christ, we are of the flesh, this sinful nature. It might be pretty flesh, but it's still flesh, okay? And this, fle this state of the sinful nature is where we will remain until we die, unless we are redeemed in Christ. And that's the simple truth of it, okay? God gives the law, whether the Old Testament or civil law, to restrain this sinful nature, okay? Now, Martin Luther said something, and I thought this was interesting. I'll go ahead and read it to you. It says, every law is given to restrain sin. In refraining from murder, adultery, theft, or other sins, I do so under compulsion because I fear the jail, the noose, the electric chair. These restrain me as iron bars restrain a lion or a bear. Such forceful restraint cannot be regarded as righteousness, rather as an indication of unrighteousness. As a wild bear is tied to keep it from running amok, so the law bridles mad and furious man to keep him from running wild. 
the need for restraint shows plainly enough that those who need the law are not righteous, but wicked men who are fit to be tied. No, the law does not justify. Okay, is that clear enough? Is that clear? So when God gave the Old Testament law, it was to punish the outrages of the flesh, right? When people acted out in the flesh, they were restrained by the Old Testament law. The civil law today in our culture represents the same thing, right? It keeps man from doing things. So when I walk into the store and I see something I like, for most people, they don't take it because they're afraid of being caught, right? It was, it's the justice of the law that keeps them from doing something wrong. Martin Luther goes on and says, the purpose of the law, accordingly, is to restrain the wicked. The devil got people into all kinds of scrapes. Therefore, God instituted governments, parents, laws, restrictions, and civil ordinances. At least they help to tie the devil's hands so that he does not rage up and down in the earth. This restraint by the law is intended by God for the preservation of all things, particularly for the good of the gospel, that it should not be hindered too much by the tumult of the wicked. Okay, so that's the purpose of the law. Go to First Timothy chapter 1, First Timothy 1. And I'll make this statement several times. The law is not redemptive. It's not redemptive. I'll explain what I mean in a little bit. First Timothy chapter 1, and look in verse 9. It says, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Okay, so that's what the law is meant for. It's not meant for the righteous person, but it is meant for the unrighteous. So we're talking about the believer, the child of God. The child of God has two natures. The sinful nature, which cannot please God, is not righteous and must be restrained by the external law. And the new nature, the spiritual nature, that governs itself. It falls within the law of God. It is inherently righteous. Okay? That new nature. In other words... The old nature knows no law, and the new nature needs no law. Does that make sense to everybody? The old nature is wild and unbridled, but the new nature, this, this spiritual ability that we have, doesn't need a law. Go to Romans chapter 6. So we're going to spend a little time in Romans 6. That was all the prelude to my teaching on Romans 6 and 7. The, these two natures that we have are the context of Romans 6 and 7. So look in verse 1 in chapter 6. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning, right? Go on living according to this old nature, the sinful nature, so that grace may abound? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Isn't this wonderful? The idea here is that we are in union with Christ. Now, a lot of times 
when people read this section of scripture, they talk about our identification with Christ. We're not identified with Christ. We're in union with Christ. So as when Christ died, I died. When he was buried spiritually, I was buried. When he was raised from the dead spiritually, I was raised from the dead. It's a union. It's not just an identification. It's a union. And this is important for us to remember. We are in union with Christ. Verse 5, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. How about that? So the Bible says that in former times, I was dead in trespasses and sins. Now, I wasn't literally dead, was I? I was in drawing breath. I was manifesting life. But my nature, my spiritual nature was dead in trespasses and sins because I only had one nature. It was that sin nature, right? But as Christ was raised from the dead and given new life, I was raised from the dead spiritually and given new life as well in this new nature. Look at verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with and that we might no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. All right? In our old natures, we were slaves to sin. We had no option, right? You are born into this world, born under this nature of Adam, and you are, you have nowhere to go, right? <laughs> I mean, that is your only nature. When our master, the flesh, told us to do something as slaves, we did it. Verse 8. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we, and then it says, we'll also live with him. You can scratch that will there. We also live with him. So that reads, now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. This is an important point here, that Jesus died and he was raised from the dead. And we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he can't die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives unto God. And I'll add there, he lives for eternity. Think about that. If death no longer has mastery over Christ, right? Death got one shot, one shot at Christ. He died on a cross and that was it. But what happened? Jesus was raised from the dead. Death no more ha has no more power over him. Isn't that wonderful? I think that's amazing. So Christ died once. Death's mastery over Christ was spent. But then Jesus was raised from the dead and given new life, and death has no more power over him. Verse 11, in the same way, count or reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. How about that? So if I've been raised from the dead spiritually, does death have any more power over me? No, death has no more power over me. I was dead in trespasses and sins. I've been raised from the death, from dead, the dead, and death no longer has power over me. And this is what I think about whenever I come across somebody who, you know, takes exception with the notion that, you know, once saved, always saved, right? When I talk about, well, you know, I'm saved, I'm in Christ, I have eternal life, and nothing can take that away from me. Well, 
Uh, that's because death only had one shot at me. I was dead in trespasses and sins, and I was given life in Christ, right? I was unified with Christ. As he lives, so I live. In Colossians, you don't have to turn there. It says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. It's hidden. It's hidden. It can't be touched by anything in this world. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. All right? So our life is hid with Christ in God through our union with Christ. That Jesus Christ died on the cross and we died with him spiritually. He was buried. We were buried with him. He was raised from the dead. We were raised with the dead with him, and he was given eternal life. We are given eternal life also. Is that clear to everybody? That's a crucial point. Look at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. This makes a lot of sense. You are living a new life. You have new life in Christ. All right. You're living according to a new nature. Now, spiritually, we have two natures. We know that the believer still has his old nature, his old sinful nature. But now he has a new nature in Christ. And it's saying here, look, don't keep putting yourself under the mastery of the old nature. Live according to the new nature. Don't let sin reign or rule in your body. Verse 13. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. In other words, don't allow yourselves to become instruments of unrighteousness. And this is part of the walk, right? We're constantly being tempted by Satan to go back under the old nature. Go back under our old lords, right? But God is beckoning to us and saying, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Verse 15, but when, but then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Now, this is important to keep in mind. The law has been removed, right? Remember we were talking about the law says I can't steal, but, you know, and, and the reason I don't steal is because the law says not to steal, right? But now the law is not there anymore. We have grace. Does that mean that I can indulge myself? I can go steal whatever I want to? No. It says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? But remember what I read earlier that Martin Luther wrote. The law is a forceful restraint to keep the sinful nature from running amok. It goes on to say, but by no means. Verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Your choice, right? Do I live according to this old nature, or do I live according to the new nature? There are only two choices. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obey the form of teaching which you were entrusted. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I taught on wholeheartedness, that God calls us to a wholehearted walk. That means that we are all in. When we're Christians, we're not part-time Christians. We are full-time Christians. We are all in. We don't have our walk by the Spirit, but we make these little allowances in the flesh. 
we obey God with our whole heart. We are all in. Verse 18, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now, of course, this is a play on words. God doesn't call us to slavehood. That's not what we're called to. We're called to a walk in righteousness. But there is this idea of obligation, right? We do have an obligation. Remember that verse in, in the Bible that says that for the love of Christ compels us. We do things for God because we are compelled by Christ's love. It's our free will decision, but we are compelled. Verse 19, I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you do not offer your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap in that time from those things that you are now ashamed, for those things result in death, okay? So your choice, do you want to be a slave of unrighteousness? You will be if you submit yourself to that slave master. That's how it works. You are a slave to whomever you choose, or are you going to be a slave or servant of righteousness? Verse 22, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves or servants to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How about that? Those are two choices. I thought of Moses and what he said back in Deuteronomy thirty nineteen. You don't have to turn there. But I said, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you. And I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live. It's your choice. It's our choice. I can choose life or I can choose death. I can choose to put myself under the old master or live according to my new master. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority. Now, this is a big topic in Scripture, authority. When we're talking about spiritual things, it's, it's about authority, all right? The law had authority over man as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married, man, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, if you're married to a man, he dies, you're no longer subject to marriage, right? So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. How about that, right? So that's the power of law. It's binding. Verse four. So, my brothers, you also died to the law. It's Old Testament law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. I thought about this. We belong to another. Um, I was talking to um, Mike Tomerlin's wife, Jane Tomerlin, a couple of weeks ago, and I was a little down about something, and you know things weren't necessarily going my way. And uh, I was saying goodbye to her, and she said as she was getting off the phone, remember who you belong to. And that just stopped me in my tracks. And I said, of course, remember who you belong to. 
When a person is saved, they be, belong to Christ. We are Christ's. And I love this. When Satan seeks to assert himself into my life through sin and demand that I obey him, my first response is, I no longer belong to you. I belong to Christ. That should always be our response. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. Mm. So this is a curious phrase, isn't it? Right? Sinful passions aroused by the law. It makes it sound like the law is bad, right? That it arouses the sinful nature, the sinful nature within me, these sinful passions. But you got to understand something first as we read through this chapter. The sinful nature is a rebel. It's an insurgent, this nature within us. It's treasonous. It betrays us. It wants to assert itself. It wants to rebel against God. It's hostile to God. Remember, we read that earlier. It is hostile, hostile to God and the commands of God. It's that sinful nature within. So what I'm saying here is, is that within me is this capacity, this nature that is hostile to God. It's hostile to God. And every once in a while, it will assert itself, and I'm hostile to God. And that's just being honest. I'm just a man, right? I'm a man with two natures. I'm a Christian, but I have an ability within me to be hostile to God. And so do, so do every one of you. And this is important for us to understand. We all have the capacity to be hostile with God, to be rebellious with God. It's just part of our old nature. Until Jesus returns, there is within us this nature that is a rebel and an insurgent. When God's law is heard, the righteous man would, of course, obey, right? But the sinful nature rebels. It says, no, I will not. That is the old nature. How about that? And this is what it means when it says the sinful passions are aroused by the law. So the law is given and the sinful passions within me rise up and say, no, I will not. Okay, verse six. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit. Anybody get that? The new way of the Spirit. Does it make sense that a Spirit-filled Christian should be living under the Old Testament law? No, of course not. It's by a new standard. In the Old Testament, what did they need? They needed binding. They needed to be ratcheted down because of this sin nature. Is that our problem? Well, sometimes. <laughs> but, right, remember what we read earlier. If you walk by the Spirit you will not fulfill the flesh, the lusts of the flesh. It Doesn't that make sense? I think it's pretty amazing. This new way of the Spirit. So let me read that over again. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sin because it arouses a sinful passion? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I wouldn't have known what sin was, except the law told me, right? For I would not have known what coveting really was, unless the law had not said, thou shalt not covet, do not covet, right? 
Martin Luther said, the purpose of the, the law is to reveal in a person his sin, his blindness, his misery, his ignorance, his hatred and contempt of God, his death, hell, and condemnation. This is the principal purpose of the law and its most valuable contribution. Is that a valuable contribution to know what law, uh, sin is? Yeah, it sure is. It's valuable to know what sin is. Verse 8, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Okay? So I don't know what coveting is, but the law comes along and says, thou shalt not covet. Now I know what coveting is, but remember, I've got this rebel within, this insurgent that asserts itself and says, I want to covet. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. So to the person without spirit, when he reads the Old Testament law, these sinful passions are aroused, and what happens? He sins, okay? It's kind of a weird state to be in, isn't it? The more I learn about sin and what I'm not to do, the more I want to do what I'm not supposed to do. Verse 10, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. All right. And like I said earlier, this doesn't mean that I was literally put to death, but that sin had its way. I was sowing to death. Verse 12. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Okay. The law is holy, righteous, and good. There's nothing wrong with the law, but the law is not redemptive. Is that clear to everybody? All the law can say is, this is what sin is, and you are guilty. Those are the two things the law, can say, the law can say. This is what sin is, and you are guilty. And then you turn to the law and say, well, how do I get unguilty? And the law says, don't know. It's just the way it is. Remember the purpose of the law. What was the purpose of the law? To restrain the old nature. Its purpose was to restrain you, not to change you. And that's what we have to keep in mind here. Verse 13, did that which was good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through that which is good, the law. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. What does that mean, utterly sinful? Well, that means that not only am I sinning, but doing so with my eyes wide open. <laughs> right? I'm disobeying while knowing that I'm doing wrong. The law says, don't covet. And I say, I don't want to covet. And then I do covet fully, you know, knowing that what I'm doing is sinful. That's what it means here by utterly sinful. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So Paul here is identifying as a person who does not have the spirit. And in, in the context here, we're talking about like an Old Testament believer. But he's also talking about a carnal Christian, right, who puts, puts himself back under the old standards. Verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate, that I do. I want to do right, but cannot. I don't want to do wrong, but I do. Isn't that weird? That's kind of a weird state to be in. But I think that anybody who is a Christian understands this frustration. Verse 16, and if I do what I do not want to do, 
I agree with the law that it is good. The, the law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. As it is, it is no longer I myself to do it. And here's the key. But the sin living in me. Okay. So what is, you've got two natures here. What is your true nature? Your true nature is your spiritual nature, right? So Paul's saying, it's no more I that do it, but the sin nature within, okay? It's this insurgent, this rebel that continues to dwell within me. Verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me that, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good that I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. I think about this and I think about, you know, what I said earlier, that all man's religion is based on this notion of cleaning up the flesh, right? So it is a flesh-based religion. Here we see the result of a flesh-based religion. What is it? Frustration. Frustration. When you read the book of Galatians, right in the beginning, Paul said, you know, talking about the Judaizers and he's telling the Galatians, you got to find out who these, these people are who are trying to get you to walk by the flesh. He says, who is he that troubleth you? And this is what happens when a person goes to church and tries to perfect his flesh. He's absolutely frustrated. He wants to do the good thing, but he can't. He wants not to do the bad thing, but he does. So it's eternal condemnation. It's frustration. Verse, let me read verse 20 again. For if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer, no longer I that do it, but the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. All right? So this is just stating the case. you got two natures. Verse 22. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law, this you could write this instead of law. This isn't talking about Old Testament law. It's talking about that inner authority, that inner tyrant within us. I see another law at work in my members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. In other words, you have in this old nature, this tendency that is wanting to enslave you back under sin. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Has anybody ever felt that way? I have. <laughs> I'm like, there's times where I am so frustrated. I know what is good. I know what is righteous. But doggone it, I keep falling into my old sin, right? I think this feeling at one time or another, or often, is understood well by any Christian who endeavors to walk by the Spirit. To know what is right, but the temptation to do what is wrong. It's anguish and frustration. Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? But look at the next verse, and this is a blessing. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, right? That's, that's awesome. But in the sinful nature, I'm a slave to the law of sin. You get to choose who your Lord is. You get to choose. That's why freedom of will is so important. We choose what nature we're going to walk by. I think about, you don't have to turn there, but James chapter 1, where it says, when a man is tempted, or when tempted, no one should say, God's tempting me, 
for God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away of his own evil desire, and he is dragged away and enticed. How about that? If you submit yourselves to that old nature through enticement, you're going to be dragged away, right? Dragged off into sin. That's the simple truth of it. Romans 8.1. Therefore, I love the word therefore, right? We know... We know from a grammatical point of view that therefore sets the, you know, the upcoming in contrast with the former, all right? Or not really sets in contrast, but in explanation, right? Therefore, in summation. And it's a blessed therefore here, right? It answers our problem. Therefore, there is now no condemnation or judgment to those who are in Christ Jesus. How about that? In Christ Jesus who are in union with Christ Jesus, who are not only experiencing the reality of the new birth, that you have Christ within you, but who is walking by the renewed mind, right? That you haven't just put Christ on here, you've been most, well, not most importantly, it's equally as important to put Christ on here, right? Therefore, there is no condemnation or judgment to those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. How about that? Now, what's the law of sin and death? Well, it's any law that, you know, that we put ourselves under that is outside of God's word. In the context here, it's talking about the Old Testament law. Even though the law was holy and just and good, here it's called the law of sin and death. Why? Because it was not redemptive. It never changed us. Verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. How about that? And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. It's your choice. It's your choice. I, I just love that. It's your choice. You know, there are denominations in Christianity that basically strip you of your freedom of will. They say that everything you do is predetermined. Nonsense. Nonsense. You have the freedom of will. Why would God devote all this time about, you know, encouraging us to submit ourselves to the new nature and not the old nature if we didn't have a choice? That makes no sense at all. Verse 5, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires. And, and that's, I think that's an important point. What are you thinking about? What are you thinking about? If you set your minds on sinful things, guess what? You're going to be serving those sinful things. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. This is why it's so important not just to go around telling people you're a Christian, but actually to live a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Word of God, that it is out part of our being, right? Verse 6, the mind of the sinful man is death. The mind controlled by the Spirit, and I don't like that word control because that gives the impression that you're forfeiting your freedom of will. It's guided, right? Led by the Spirit, but the mind that is guided by the Spirit, is life and peace. Your choice. Your choice, right? The sinful mind, now listen to this, the sinful mind is, what's that next word? Hostile. 
hostile to God. So all man's philosophies, all man's religions, when you get right down to the core, are hostile to God. And the reason being is because man thinks that he can do what only God can do. And that's redemption. And that's what God did through Jesus Christ, is redeem us. Okay? The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. You know, we used to use the word, well, I mean, we do use the word surrender. But in the old days, when we talked about surrender, people would get mad at you. They'd say, don't use that word. That's not a good word to use. We don't surrender to anybody or anything. I surrender to God, right? I submit. Isn't the word submit and surrender the you know synonyms? It, exactly. I submit to God. I surrender to God's law. So it says the sinful mind is hostile to God. It cannot s- surrender to God's law, nor can it do so. Or it does not surrender to God, nor can it do so. Those led or are guided by the spirit, the spiritual nature cannot please God. Is that clear enough? So you can be the most religious person, you know, you can do everything perfectly, light your candles in the morning, wear your, you know, you know, habit or whatever the heck they call it. You know, I was raised Roman Catholic. You can do all these things, all these works. The Bible says you're hostile to God unless you submit to the spirit, right? You can't please God. Verse nine, you, however, are uh, controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. So that's the prerequisite. You've got to be saved. You've got to have this nature within you. Without Christ in you, you are merely a sinner. You might be an educated, intellectual, or intelligent, accomplished, attractive, rich, prestigious, or altruistic sinner, but you're still a sinner. You're still a sinner. And all you can do ultimately is sin. Because everything you do is not submitted to God. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So what we were saying earlier, right? Remember who you belong to. Remember who you belong to. If Christ is in you, you belong to Christ. You belong to him. Go through your life every day remembering that you belong to Christ. Okay? You belong to Christ. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Your own? No, Christ's righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead is living in you. Now, I want to make a point here before I go on. Remember what we just read in verse 10. Let's read it over again. But if Christ is in you, right? We're not talking identification, are we? We're talking union. If Christ in you, is in you. Remember back in John chapter 17 says, Jesus is praying to his father and he says, I'm in you and you're in me. And I pray that our, you know, our, the, the people that you've given me will be in me and be in you. And it's everybody's in everybody. The idea here is union. It's union that we are in one another, right? It's that we are fused. So in verse 10, it says, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him raised up Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised up Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit 
who lives in you. Is, is he making a point here? Verse 12, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. All right. Remember, it is free will, but it's not without obligation. Right. We have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. I have no obligation to the flesh. Remember, I died to the flesh. I died from the flesh and I was raised from the dead. That means I have no obligation to the sinful nature. I owe it nothing. Satan will come along and say, you owe me. And your response should be, should be, I do not because I died in Christ and now I live in him. How about that? That's important for us to remember. We owe the flesh nothing. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. Or if we live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And I wrote down here, uh, it says we are, those who are led, led by the Spirit are sons of God. We don't become sons of God. It's that we are. This isn't causal, right? We are sons of God. Verse 15, where you did not receive the Spirit that makes you a slave again unto fear. I think I heard Janice talking about that today. Isn't that an awesome way to go, Janice? For you did not receive the spirit that makes you a slave again unto fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And what does it say? And by him or by it, we cry what? Abba, Father. And that's that intimate relationship that Jesus Christ was talking about back in John 17, that I would be in you and you in me and they in us, right? That's what this thing is all about. It's union. When we walk according to this new nature, we are walking in union with Christ. That's what Christianity is all about. It's not relics. It's not works. It's being in union with Christ, both spiritually by the new birth and by the renewed mind submission. That's it. And I'm going to end up here in Colossians chapter 1, Colossians 1. And look at verse 27. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you. Christ in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Remember that? Many of us took a class in the old days. Yeah. The hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. To this end, I labor struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Isn't that something? That is what we do. That's why we do it, so that people can come to Christ. Okay? So that's the teaching today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, Father, that our relationship with you and Christ isn't one of just mere association, that we are in union with you, that this is deeper than just association, that this is a complete change of nature. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you teach us through our Lord Jesus Christ to walk according to this new rule, this new standard, this new way. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can bear that fruit within our lives, the love and joy and peace and long-suffering and patience and goodness and meekness and temperance. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for this. In your Son's name, Jesus Christ, amen.